welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias, and I'm still incredibly full. It feels like we spent the last month moving from one holiday feast to another. Thanksgiving feels like it was five minutes ago. I still have lechon in my fridge from Nochebuena, and I'm sure everyone's got their own stack of containers in their freezer. What, yuca, brisket, black-eyed peas? At some point, we've all probably said, ugh, I'll never eat again. But you know, it is close to lunchtime. And maybe the leftovers in your lunchbox at work don't sound as enticing as when you pack them. Maybe, just maybe, you're ready to eat again? To eat something different? Well, we've got you covered. I asked my friend Ryan Pfeffer to help us out. Ryan's the, F, the editor of The Infatuation Miami. It's a food review website that rates new restaurants and checks in on old South Florida favorites. Ryan dines out more than anyone I know. Uh, and he does it uh, as anonymously as possible without wearing a fake mustache or a funny hat. I don't... I don't think. Before this job, I was the food editor at the Miami Herald, and when I bumped into Ryan at a restaurant, we both knew we were onto something. That is to say, Ryan knows good food and good places to eat it. So let's bring him on. We'll ask him about his favorite new spots, the places he escapes to when he wants a quiet meal, and where he goes when he wants to splurge. So Ryan, are you ready to talk food again? <laughs> I'm I'm ready. Yeah, d- d- despite all odds, I'm ready to talk food again. Um, you know, the thing about this job is, you have a series of gigantic meals, and you never want to touch food again. And then something funny happens the next day; you get hungry again. <laughs> <laughs> it seems you, to happen all the time. I know. Yeah, the last it's been a rough week between holidays and just the the eatings of this job. But I'm I'm getting there. I'm actually kind of thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch after this. Oh yeah, me too. We're going to get into that. What what is your what did your holidays look like? What did your food traditions look like? You know, it's pretty low key. I go back to my parents' house in Fort Lauderdale. Um, my mom cooks a very lovely, very big meal, uh, and I sort of gorge myself on dessert, <laughs> a lot of which is still in my fridge. This year, the dessert MVP, I got to say, was the eggnog pie from Ori Bake Shop. What? I don't know if you've been there yet, Ori. Oh, it's such a fun place, man. It is. Uh, it was one of those pandemic pop-up things. Uh, a baker named Helen Kim started selling Japanese, Korean, Asian baked goods from her apartment. Oh, uh, and, you know, it's one of those places that made the tradi- the transition to a brick and mortar. And it is kind of within a couple miles of my house and has become like my go-to dessert spot. Where, where is that place? Give us some give us some cross streets. Give us Little some details. Little River, um, right by the Citadel, where all those new restaurants are opening up. It is right next to Tran Ann. Actually, they're kind of in business with Tran Ann. Uh, and right next to favorite of both of ours actually the last time i saw you at a restaurant was at offsite so at off-site, just walking right. distance from there as well yeah that's there's a lot going on in that little stretch with uh offsite that that brewery that was started for the folks out in, in, in the netherworld who are hearing this like it was started by the box elder uh founder adam and um and steve santana who owns Takiza. so it's Correct. like so it's like almost to me it's the best bar food that you'll ever find like the best bur- version of bar food that you could find at a place Truly, truly. You look at that menu and it seems simple enough. You're like, okay, you know, hot dog, hamburger, fried chicken sandwich, and then the food starts hitting the table and you're like, oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> it's like so good. Yeah, like the bread is a Japanese milk bread and the the chicken is marinated three days in like a buttermilk something or other and it's everything has like you know, I hate this word, but a chefy, a chefy twist to it, right? <laughs> yeah, which is just another term for you know saying that they take it seriously and they care about all of the ingredients that go into a dish, which you can really taste when you go there. My favorite spot for like a beer and a meal, just so good every yeah. time. Yeah, Jessica Bakeman, who's uh, who's our our our, um, uh, our one of our editors here, uh, she'll just text me from it. She's like, "Oh my god, I'm at offsite and I love it." 
So. <laughs> every, yeah, it elicits that reaction from you every time you go, which is, uh, you know, it's such a consistently good restaurant, which is such a difficult thing to do. Yeah. You mentioned some of your, your that you gorged on some food. What's on your table? What's on your holiday table? This year, my mom made a roast, a tenderloin. You know, I sort of come from a split household. We don't have strong cultural traditions. I am vaguely white, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> which is not the best thing to be when it comes to eating food. So, you know, I've always been jealous of sort of the Noche Buena traditions and a lot of the diasporas that make up South Florida have big, impressive, you know, foods that they meet every year around the holidays. It, it sort of will do, you know, kind of classic holiday foods. But I got to say my mom, who is, you know, of Italian and Lebanese descent, two cultures that really know how to cook. Oh, man. She knocks it out of the park every time. But yeah, it was, it was, it was you know, simple this year. A lot of Ina, Ina Garten recipes. Oh. I think the roast we did was a Kenji uh, Lopez recipe. So Oh, the Kenji Lopez alt recipes are amazing. I, I have this... um. He, he has this recipe for a pan pizza uh, online that it's like the it's one of the most the simplest pizza recipes you can make. It's like an overnight uh, dough mm-hmm. and it is amazing. It's my kid's new favorite and it's the easiest thing in the world to do. I'll, I'll have to shoot you that recipe. But if you Google Kenji Lopez Alt, A-L-T and pan pizza, you'll see it and it's, it's fantastic. Please do. Please yeah, do. but see, but you, but you can colonize traditions. You're a white guy. You could just be like, <laughs> "I'll take some of this. I have discovered your 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 lechon asado." That is what we do. <laughs> I mean, we we did have actually a little infatuation Miami holiday potluck. Oh, uh, nice. Where we sort of tried to think about different Miami holiday foods, um, and I picked up a lechon. Not a Cuban lechon, a Filipino lechon. Ooh, yes. From a little spot in North Miami, um, who now, oh God, I'm blanking on the name. <laughs> I'll come back to it. Go back to it. If fine. you go on our on Instagram page, you okay. can actually you can see it. Um, oh, this oh, is good advice. Lu- nope, it came to me. Okay. Lutong Pinoy, tremendous Filipino restaurant in North Miami Beach. Um, while I was over there, I also grabbed a guava hala from Sunny's Bakery, which Oof. they serve year round, but is absolutely as good as it sounds. And we had pan de jamón at the party. We had some sort of cake. Which is a Venezuelan uh, tradition. Yeah, yeah. yeah our, our social media manager, Julia, is Venezuelan, so she really helps us out with our Venezuelan coverage. Our new staff writer is Cuban, so she hit up a Cuban bakery that she really likes by her house for one of those cakes. You could help me out with a name here that sort of maybe look, looks like a log, like a kind of a, <laughs> a tree that's oh, been chopped down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, God. The, well, the, the Peruvians have a version where they call it Pionono, uh-huh. uh, but I forget what the Cubans call theirs. But yes, I got you. It looks like it's been rolled over <laughs> yes. into like a like a Swiss roll, like yep, one of those exactly. little Debbie Swiss rolls, right? Exactly. And we yeah. do have, that is on our Instagram page, so you can you can see what we brought to our own holiday potluck. And and actually, that's a, that's a good time to say that we're talking with uh, Ryan Pfeffer, who's the Miami editor of The Infatuation, uh, The Infatuation Miami. And if you Google The Infatuation Miami, you'll find a, a bunch of their great reviews and and one of the things that i love that you do is you do your reviews on instagram like you'll go and you'll and you'll do them all so you can kind of flip through the stories so they're not like a static post you can flip through the stories and it seems like such a fun engaging way to look at the food review like it's not the sit down serious dining review you know like the i am the tastemaker of miami like you just go and you have a fun time yeah, you know, those are our restaurant review ride-alongs, which are all collected and archived on our on our Instagram page, so you can scroll back and see years' worth of them. And it's, you know, I, I look at it as a companion to our written reviews, mm-hmm. and it's a really fun and interesting way to kind of take the reader along on our process and peel back the curtain a little bit, which I think is really helpful for the reader so they can understand how we approach things and how we review restaurants and how we don't, you know, 
take ourselves or food too seriously. I mean, we sort of, we have fun with it for sure. We do take criticism seriously, but you know, there's just, we, I think the ride-alongs are a really approachable, fun way for people to kind of understand what we do and how we do it. Yeah. Like there, there is an element to that job that I think you have to, you have to be, you have to be serious about the work, but not take yourself too seriously. Yeah. Yeah. No one wants to be that cliche. I mean, you know, everything, everyone thinks of the, the critic from Ratatouille. Yep. Anton Ego. (laughs) That evil man. Um, Yeah. You know, no one wants to read a review written by someone that just sounds pompous and is using a bunch of big food adjectives for the sake of using them. Um, So we really try to write, you know, in a way that is relatable to the average person, whether or not they went to culinary school or, you know, have eaten at all the Michelin starred restaurants across the country. Oh, Michelin stars. I really want to talk about that, too, because uh, it gets people riled up. But did you read that the New York Times, uh, the the food critic there, uh, uh, Pete Wells, um, he talked about they recently had a podcast where they talked about uh, how he changed his approach to what places he even visits. Like the pandemic totally blew up the model and talked about how they blew up uh with the places that they visited, like one of their best red places was about a lechonera, a, mm. like a Puerto Rican style lechonera place. And I just thought that that was really interesting because it's like, welcome to the club, New York Times. Like, let's <laughs> let's talk to the people here the way and go to the places that the people eat. For sure. You got to get out of your bubble every once in a while. I did read that review by Pete Wells. It was a great review. I'm a fan of his work. Me but too. I think the pandemic showed people, it showed me that, you know, the ways in which we eat food they don't have to look like how we thought they used to look. You know, Mm -hmm. I had some of straight up the most delicious stuff I've ever eaten in my life, like in parking lots by just, you know, a young ambitious chef with a flat top or, you Mm -hmm. know, Venmoing someone in front of their apartment building for something they baked themselves in their, in their oven. Um, You know, it broke down the barriers of what a traditional restaurant should look like and needs to be. And I think, you know, I'm, there were not a lot of positives to come out of the pandemic, but it did showcase a creativity among chefs, both in Miami and nationwide, that, you know, was just really exciting and kind of challenged what I think a lot of people thought a traditional restaurant experience was supposed to feel like. Is there a place that you're thinking about? Is there a place that uh, that that kind of fits that new model, something that happened that, that we wouldn't have seen pre-pandemic? You know, there's there's a few places that come to mind. I mean, Zitsum is a sort of restaurant that was born out of that. Uh, Zitsum is one of the most exciting restaurants in Miami right now. I still think people don't realize just how good it is. Uh, so if you're listening, please stop what you're doing, pull over and make a reservation at Zitsum. But it, the it's, back- tucked, it's tucked inside of a bank building right off of Alhambra. Correct. And you really, it's like one of those, if you know, you know, like you really yep. have to seek it out. There's no sign. There's still no sign out front, right? <laughs> yeah, you will get lost on the way there, but it's okay. Keep trying. It is worth it. And, you know, Pablo, uh, the chef there, during the pandemic, he started selling dumplings, I think literally from his apartment uh, around yeah. that area. And now he's in Coral Gables. He started like in Kendall, but Zitsum is now yep. in Coral Gables. Correct. Right? It's yeah. in Coral Gables now. Um, and, you know, it's... He developed a small following like that. I think the way the real estate market looked probably allowed him to get into that restaurant space that he has now. And, you know, just I'm not sure if that place would have happened if it wasn't for kind of the pandemic forcing him to think on his feet and, you know, cook for his livelihood, essentially. Yeah, it was very much cook for your life. Yeah, for a lot of people. I'm curious about your background, like how you got into writing about food. Uh, how did that that came very gradually, or was it was it something specific about your background that you have always been interested in food? Or 
You know, I've always been interested in food. In my 20s, I think I was a little more interested in drinking than eating. <laughs> That's since changed. You know, I've, I've always worked in local media around Miami. Where did you go to school? Where did you go to school in high school? FSU. I went in high school. Boo. I went to Cardinal Gibbons in Fort Lauderdale. Boo. You can also boo. I'll boo that too. FSU. Do not boo FSU. <laughs> not, not up in here. Um, and yeah, afterwards, I got a job at New Times. I bounced a timeout. At New Times, I was their music editor for a while, and actually, it was where I first started writing criticism. Used to review concerts. Sure. Um, Leonard Pitts was a was a music critic, and who's been on the show before. It's a fun job. Um, I kind of like reviewing restaurants better, but it was a very fun gig. And then I was at Time Out for a little bit. That's sort of where I started to kind of move a little more into the restaurant world, but. Mm -hmm. I was just very lucky. I sort of naturally started getting really interested in food and restaurants right around the time that I saw the job opening for, for this current job that I have at the infatuation. And it just, the stars aligned and it worked out. Very cool. I'll never forget when you were at Time Out, you totally clowned me because uh, I had written about the croqueta cake. The horrifying croqueta yes, cake. Yes. And you're like, who made this person, this poor person go eat this croqueta cake? And have you had it yet at any point? I haven't, but I recently, we just published a guide to the best Cuban bakeries in Hialeah, written by one of our contributors, Juliet, who is herself a Hialeah native born and raised. So she's Good authority, okay. good person to listen to. And uh, she put Breadman, I think was the baker, they make that croquetta cake. She that's says, yep. for her money, Breadman is the best Cuban bakery in Miami right now. Wow, Just that's, doing, that's high praise. Doing a mix of really interesting, innovative stuff with traditional Cuban baked goods, but mm -hmm. also kind of nailing the classics too. So I have been meaning to get over there. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to try the croquetta cake. Come on, man. Come on, man. You got to try it. They it, got two locations. There's one in Hialeah and there's one uh, over on A Street in 80-something, 80 okay. 85th, 87, somewhere around there. So you have your options. And I would <laughs> I would definitely say there's one where they tell part flan, uh, part arroz con leche. Yep, she called that out in her review. I want to say it's the alabao or something like that. I think that it's sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, it is so good. Uh, we're talking with Ryan Pfeffer, who's the Miami editor of The Infatuations, a website that reviews restaurants uh, in Miami and uh, does a great job of it. Um, so you get into writing about food, but I do remember <laughs> when I was when I was reading about kind of background. You know, I was at the Herald, so we do a little bit of uh, some opponent research, <laughs> sure. right? Put in, and and I remember you wrote this amazing story about spending the day with Dave Grutman. I'm sorry, I should say David Grutman because he's gotten very mad at me for saying in print Dave versus yeah, Dave. Yeah, a publicist will, uh, I think, shoot a blow dart into your neck if you, <laughs> you call him Dave. But you spent the day with him and it sounded like... It sounded made up because it was like some celebrity would come in and then Kim Kardashian was on the phone. And like, what did you learn about Dave Grutman that day about his his like place in Miami culture? Well, some of David, that. David, 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 David <laughs> Some of that celebrityness was made up. They was paraded before me sort of as to take part in the story. Oh, kind that of, is so funny. A, a bit of a calculated move on his part. But, you know, that is sort of his whole brand. And you Right, see like that. Partnering, partnering with celebrities. Sure, sure. Yeah, you see that with the restaurants he opens, too. I mean... Clubstaurants? Clubstaurants. They are just about all clubstaurants. All right, first, let's back up, because okay. you and I know. But explain to the people what a clubstaurant is, number one, and two... So is there any reason to ever visit one? <laughs> I did a guide to clubstrants uh, this year for the infatuation. It was a guide I was horrified to do and then grew to love. Um, and it was, uh, so I had to kind of make a working definition of what is a clubstrant while I was researching that. Okay. And so my working definition is a clubstrant is where you can go and have dinner and also stand up and dance in the dining room without being kicked out of the restaurant. Um, so it is, you know, 
a essentially a club that serves food. There's very loud music. You cannot hear the person next to you. Prices are incredibly expensive. Everyone is very dressed up. It seems like he he cornered the market on uh, this the 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 club kids. He grew up with them, and then once they were too old to move and dance around for for four hours, he figured out let's sit them down and serve them food. Uh, that, so, what are some examples? What are some clubs club restaurants? Let's see. I just about every Groot hospitality Komodo. restaurant. Komodo, your sexy fish. Right. Um, uh, what's the one? Uh, the Strawberry Moon. Strawberry Moon is no? I'd say a borderline club restaurant. Chica in uh, in Mimo turns into a club restaurant on Fridays and yeah, Saturdays. These aren't all gr- these aren't all David Grutman places, no. but these are these are the new the new face of Miami party scene, so to speak. Yeah, you know the it's interesting. I mean, scene. you look back ten years ago, and all these big mega EDM clubs were opening up, and now it seems like the hospitality industry, or at least that section of it, has shifted over to restaurants. Maybe it's more lucrative from a business perspective, or maybe the tastes have just changed, but it does seem like people do want to eat, you know, in the VIP section more more than they used to want to just chug Red Bull vodkas and fist pump. We've been talking with Ryan Pfeffer, the Miami editor of The Infatuation, a restaurant review website. We're going to take a little break here, um, and we'll be back with Ryan talking about food and uh, behind the scenes of becoming a food writer. Stick around. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm your host, Carlos Frias, and we're back with Ryan Pfeffer, the Miami editor of The Infatuation, an online food guide that rates and reviews restaurants around the world. Ryan's a South Florida native, and he covers the Miami food scene the way only a local can by writing hyper-specific headlines like, quote, where to go when Lanyap is too crowded. (laughs) What's up, Ryan? We're we're back with you here. Um, So, you know, I always, I got the question when I was a food writer, how do you go about reviewing a restaurant in a way that's uh, that feels authentic? You know, that feels uh, you know anonymous, so that so to speak. Um, how have you gone about doing that? And do you find do you find that anonymity is is even something that you can you can expect anymore? It's harder uh, the more I put my face out there on our Instagram page and and sort of the more public facing I get, but. You know, we still, we never tell a restaurant we're coming. We always try to make reservations under different names. It's difficult because just the technology of reservation platforms, sometimes they can just flag your account and mm-hmm. sort of always know when you're coming. Yep. There are ways around that that I won't discuss. <laughs> I won't divulge our secrets. But, you know, occasionally I will get recognized at a restaurant. But the thing is, there's not kind of a secret button a restaurant can push to all of a sudden become good. <laughs> so, right, there's that quick, uh, the good button. So being recognized, it's just, you know, I if it happens, if I start to notice a whole bunch of free food parade to the table, sometimes it's a hint that I've been made. Um, but je- honestly, the best thing you can do as a restaurant, if you do recognize me or really any critic, I think, who's trying to dine anonymously, is just treat them like any other customer. Uh, because, you know, if I feel like my experience has been corrupted to a certain level um, after I've been recognized, I sometimes won't even write about that restaurant. I'll just send my staff writer or, you know, sit on it for a few months. So it can kind of, trying to treat a critic well can come back to bite a restaurant a little bit. Yeah, I I think about uh, our our producer, Leslie Obay Atkinson, uh, was a a server at one point. And uh, at one of the restaurants, like they had the pictures of all the critics, including me in the back, you know, (laughs) like uh, critics and people who write about food in general in Miami. And that's like a real thing that people talk about, like at restaurants, they will have your photo up. Oh, yeah. At um, 
I'll, I'll out them here because they're a good restaurant. I really like them. But my social media manager went on a photo shoot to Claw, uh, one of our best new restaurants of the year. And they somehow ended up back in the kitchen, I think, doing taking some footage. And she kind of looked to her left, and there was the big wall of critics they had. <laughs> and <laughs> my face was front and center on it. Oh, that's great. Always a little surreal. Yeah. And and I think that you, you brought up a good point, which is uh, the new thing is like try to di- dine unannounced. You know, you just show up and like if you're going to a barbecue place, you can't all of a sudden make that 15 hour brisket good. Either it is or it's not. Yep. You know, you can't really fake. You can't really fake that. You just can't as as much as some people try. You know, there's just it's we're observing and from our firsthand experience and, you know, that experience doesn't change that much whether they recognize me or not. Right. Um, tell me about some of the places that that you went to this year that you that you really liked. You mentioned the infatuation put together a list of. Uh, the best restaurants of 2022. I think there were like nine restaurants on that list. Are there a couple that stand out in your mind? Like, like, thank goodness this place exists now that I can go to. Yeah, there certainly are. You know, when I think back on the last year of eating in Miami, one food comes to mind and that is pizza. Um, It Mm. seems like there were so many pizza openings this year, which I think was a result of the pandemic. A lot of people shifted to these easy, comforting foods like pizza and sandwiches. Um, and, you know, actually right in your backyard here, not too far from your studio, is a place called Miami Slice. I, listen, don't even tell me because I've been trying to get to Miami Slice. I'm looking over into our control room and I'm looking at our producers and it's like, we've been trying to get to Miami Slice since I've been here for the last month. But they open only open from Thursday to Sunday, only starting at 5. And it's like, <laughs> 5, I just want to, I don't necessarily want to drive home. But so, you know what? Yeah. I'm also hungry at noon on Wednesday. Yeah, you're, I want pizza now. <laughs> you're starting to sound like my comment section, and I'll <laughs> I'll play advocate for them a little bit. Okay, okay, um, go. They are shill. a small local business. They're run by the La Latina team, actually. It's mm. another tremendous restaurant, a uh, Venezuelan restaurant in Midtown. And, you know, they're figuring it out. They don't have a big financial backer. They're a small team in an incredibly small space who just happened to serve the best pizza I've ever had in my life. Wow. That's going to come with long lines, big wait times, and you know, the logistics of what they're trying to figure out how to do there are not easy. I have heard anecdotally from that team, they are trying to open more hours and more days, but the labor shortage has kind of affected them. I think they're having trouble finding the staff to do that. So I think if you bear with them for a little bit, they're going to figure it out. They're going to get their feet underneath them and you'll be able to have your Miami slice lunch soon enough. Let, let me tell you, I, that labor shortage you mentioned is, um, I've heard from more than one restaurant owner that a big part of it was immigration because, uh, because of the pandemic, because of such uh, you know, restrictions in this country on immigration, that they've, they've had fewer, fewer bodies, fewer people even, even coming in. Because you know, uh, Anthony Bourdain kind of said the quiet part out loud years ago, which is that kitchens are full of undocumented immigrants you know, who, who build the backbone really of of the restaurant industry. And when those people are, are not available, you have something like a restaurant open four days a week, you know, for four hours a day, you know, that that's a reality. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I mean, the restaurant industry is a canary in the coal mine for fo- for so many big systemic issues uh, in the country. And that's part of it, you know, a giant, a lot of competition from big out of town restaurants who are paying generous salaries to an already squeezed uh, labor market in Miami is part of it. There are a lot of issues. (laughs) Carbone. (laughs) (laughs) Major food group. No, I mean, you can can say that they certainly are. I think a lot of restaurants have felt the impact of their presence. They are, you know, 
sucking up a lot of resources and a lot of labor in their slow South Florida takeover. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned pizza and one of my one of my favorite pandemic pop-ups was like I love old Greg's and like they have this great square pie, but I'm actually a fan of their round pie, which I find very comparable to the to the uh, Miami slice pie, which I've had. Yeah. Um, and like we had so many of those restaurants, you know, these pandemic pop-ups. Are is there anything are you back to pre-pandemic mode, like dining-wise? Because I know we obviously the world changed, and we all had to rethink, you know, how we interacted with people. And you know, the fact that we're back in a studio says that you know uh, that things have changed. Uh, are you back to pre-pandemic dining mode? And and is there anything that stuck for you? Yeah, you know, I am back to pre-pandemic dining mode, and it's kind of sad because I do miss that sort of spontaneity of the pandemic, that pop-up atmosphere. Mm. It was a very exciting time to be covering food. It definitely, going out and eating is starting to feel more like it did before the pandemic. You know, in Miami, little changed compared to other markets. Um, in fact, something's only intensified here in terms of growth of, of the restaurant scene. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing that I took with me during the pandemic period, and I think is kind of getting lost a little bit and has been forgotten about, is just the stress that hospitality workers undergo. You know, mm. and they were, in a lot of respects, frontline workers, especially in Miami, a city that never really shut down our restaurants. So I still carry a tremendous amount of respect for restaurant employees having undergone the pandemic and having worked through it and came out the other side. Um, and, you know, I think it's a it's a good reminder to tip tip generously tip a lot because you know these these employees really went through a, a whole heck of a lot during the pandemic and are and are still you know struggling with inflation and and the cost of living in miami especially yeah and i think uh, when it comes to to restaurant work in miami i mean that's that's an extension of the hospitality industry and like what is the backbone of of Miami's economy it's it's tourism it's economy and it's like that's you know if you're gonna pay anywhere that's put your lean in and pay that if you enjoyed that experience reward it you know yeah. with with more than your paltry 18 <laughs> percent man We're, are we at the point of 20 like 20 is standard i think 20 is is the responsible is, thing to do right now yes. if you can afford it you know look i know inflation's very hard people restaurants have never been more expensive for a lot of reasons and also because you know the industry is shifting, hopefully, or at least certain parts of it are shifting towards a more equitable mindset for their workers and trying to pay people a fair livable wage. And that is going to mean paying slightly more expensive prices for at restaurants, you know. And that being said, I also understand from a consumer's perspective that it is just getting expensive to even have lunch. I mean, you used to be able to have lunch for with a $10 bill in your pocket. It's become a $20 bill thing these days in, in oh, a yeah. lot, most parts of Miami. So I really get that from both sides. Um, but yeah, 20% is the nice thing to do. I think so. Do you find that um, that you're eating out, uh, do you're eating at home more than you are eating out? Or I mean, I know eating out is, dining out is part of your job, is your job. Uh, but do you find that you appreciate dining at home? And not just because it it's not, financially crushing <laughs> <laughs> on the rare moments i do get to cook at home i really enjoy it i would say i'm at about a four to six uh day a week eating out schedule that's about how many dinners i'll have in a given week my team is about on that same schedule if not more so the opportunities you know between going out and eating at restaurants and trying to go through the leftovers that are always present in my fridge to not waste food i do not get the opportunity to cook a lot but when i do I really enjoy it. I try to do ambitious things in the kitchen. I get my 
I go to my local butcher shop, Proper Sausage in Miami Shores, and I get a whole chicken or some kind of fun piece of meat, and I roast it, and I pretend like I'm a chef for a night. Yeah, oh, it's, yeah. it's a nice change of pace. Nice, nice. What well, what do you like making at home, then? Like, I'm in my roast chicken era. I've, I've entered it. I'm okay. here, and I'm learning how to roast chicken. I'm becoming like a little Ina Garden. <laughs> it's uh, really fun. Right, Ryan's chicken period. What is, what is it? So give me, the, give, me the, give me your go-to, your last successful chicken dish (laughs) (laughs) i use a recipe from molly boz i have her cookbook Uh, she has a recipe for pastrami roasted chicken where she uses a pastrami-esque rub on it that's cheating that's cheating come on it's very good it's it's (laughs) where you rub it on it's like a paste i think her big tip i hope i get this right is to put the legs facing the back of the oven because it's the hotter part of your oven okay and it helps it cook more evenly or something but she has not steered me wrong in my roast chicken quest yet my my roast chicken uh, hot take or tip is uh, get the seasoning between the skin and the meat. You gotta kind of stuff your fingers between yeah. the the skin and the meat and get that in there. It becomes a violent act at yeah. a certain point. <laughs> it, it really is. You kind of have to hold your breath and <laughs> and be and, and and be a stronger person. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Gives you more respect for for the chefs in the kitchen too that have to do that dirty work on a daily basis. So when you cook at home, really, I think what you start to appreciate is why is it worth it for you to go out right? Like you really look at a restaurant and say, was my money worth it here? Is So what is it worth it for you? Like when, when is it that you like uh, to go to a restaurant? When is it that you put your faith in a restaurant and say like, I'd rather them do it than me? Like what is a, a place that's worth the money for you? Uh, yeah. I mean, almost every place I go does it better than me personally in the kitchen. <laughs> but you know, when I'm thinking about places to take my friends or spend my own money, not using the corporate card, I'm like a lot of people. I like those reliable places that are within two miles of my house that just never mess up. And for me, that means blue collar. It means offsite. It means Paradise Books and Bread in North Miami. All right, let's hit, let's hit each, let's each each one of those three because those are very low key, but but interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Like Paradise Books and Bread, which is the most random collection of things. Like they <laughs> they bake their own bread. They use part of a bread recipe to make like a like a square type of pizza. Uh, they sell like kind of like radical leftist books. Uh, they sell like a handful of really thoughtful natural wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just kind of like this interesting little random spot. It's lovely. You know what it is? It really at its heart is a community space, I think. A space for people to gather and eat and talk and drink and read if they want to learn how to seize the means of production. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, you know, it's it's great. And I I love it because it just... It never fails. It's consistent. That's what I'm growing to really appreciate mm. in a restaurant. And what is the hardest thing to do is it's you can be good one night, you can be good one weekend, to, but to be good every single time you go. And that's why I love Blue Collar, and that's why I love Offsite and Paradise, and you know a lot more. I mean, all the places that are highly rated on our website are places like this too, where you just they're not going to mess up, you know, and you just trust them, and. It's just, those are always the places I end up bringing people who are visiting me. Well, you know what? It, it made me think of places, because Miami looks, loves to chase the shiny new object, it made me think about a place that is now down the street from the studio, Mignonette, which is another uh, Danny Surfer-owned restaurant. Danny yep. Surfer owns Blue Collar up uh, mm-hmm. in uh, Mimo. And I just went there, and we kind of had kind of a happy hour, and everything was perfect. The scallops were perfectly cooked and tender and and it wasn't shiny and new the place has been around for seven eight years and it's and it's like you said i hadn't been to that place in maybe three years and going back felt 
the food was exactly as it was the last time I left. Maybe not the exact dishes, but the quality and the consistency of it. And you know what? That's that's a rare thing. Yeah, I'm such a big fan of Danny Surfer. And Mignonette is still pound for pound the best, one of the best seafood restaurants in Miami. If you're just interested in going and having some just amazing, delicious seafood, Mignonette is always at the top of my list. Yeah. Well, we're talking with Ryan Pfeffer, who's the Miami editor to the Infatuation, a food review website that you can trust. <laughs> and uh, we're going to take a little break, uh, but we're going to be back talking with Ryan in uh, just a minute. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm your host, Carlos Frias, and we've been talking with food writer and editor Ryan Pfeffer about this year in food. Uh, and before I forget, our our uh, producer in the other room, Elisa, said that the salads at Paradise Books and Bread slap. Oh, so. they sure do. And they make them with their own, a lot of the own produce that they grow right in the backyard garden, too. That is like the most millennial thing ever. <laughs> hey, you know what? I'm curious. You know, you... You go out to so many places. You dine at so many places uh, with the infatuation. And I'm curious, is there is there a category of food that you could eat all the time? Like, is there a category of food? Like, for me, it's pizza. Like, I can never say no to pizza. Like, if it shows up, even when it's bad, it's good. Like other things in life, even when they're bad, they're good. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'm a big cheeseburger guy. I can eat cheeseburgers until I explode. Um, I have Ooh. thought a lot, too, about, like, what my favorite i mean it's hard to pick a favorite type of cuisine but i will say one type of cuisine that living in miami has really taught me to appreciate is peruvian and more specifically nikkei peruvian japanese yes it is such a fascinating interesting precise delicious type of cuisine that makes so much sense for miami and miami's climate you know the highest rated spot on our website is Itame. Of course it is. I know you're familiar with. I am a big fan. So <laughs> so Nikkei, just to, just to back up a second, is kind of this um, fusion between uh, Japanese and Peruvian. And it really is is endemic to, to Peru uh, because of the huge Japanese populations that have emigrated over the, over the you know, century, yeah. so to speak. Absolutely. And so, and so these guys, I love their story, right? Like it's a, it's a, a dad who brought his kids over um, from Peru when they were really little and they started uh, in this food hall and now it's kind of grown into this restaurant where they do this. It's I, it's almost like sushi uh, and, and Peruvian kind of fused and it takes so much skill. Yeah, know. that's exactly it. it. It's, you know, a lot of sushi chef techniques with leche de tigres that like just pop in your mouth and the menu changes on almost a daily basis. They have nigiris that are some of the most interesting pieces of sushi in Miami. And it's just, I don't know, there's something about that restaurant where the flavors just feel, if I, you know, there's certain, there's a name for a type of disorder, not disorder, but where you can kind of taste colors or. <laughs> right, right, where your your receptors cross yes. and you can taste colors, yeah. And if I had to taste Miami, it would taste a lot like Itame for me personally. Yeah, there's a big mix of cultures there and i think the because cuban food has been such at the base of like how miami became identified right but cuban food in miami became hand in hand uh, it's easy to 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 miss that peruvian cuisine has become so big in miami and you can find such great home style versions of it everywhere and this is kind of like the 
like the four star version of it, you know? Yeah, yeah, that it's it's a version of it that's highest aspiration. But no, totally, you know, Peruvian, Nicaraguan, we're home to the I think the highest Nicaraguan population in the US, Venezuelan, Colombian, Haitian, West Indian, Jamaican, you know, Miami's food scene is stunningly diverse and I I think it's I, our job and my team's job to really constantly be reminding people of that. Well, we've been talking about Miami a lot uh, with uh, Ryan Pfeffer, the Miami editor of the Infatuation, a food review website. Um, but there are a lot of spots outside of Miami that are really interesting. And I know that the Infatuation has been writing about Broward uh, spots that have been that are worth a little bit of a drive, that are worth an adventure if they're in your area. What does Broward do? What is interesting to you in Broward? You know, I grew up in Fort Lauderdale. Don't kick me out of the studio. It's it's part of my story. We love Fort Lauderdale. (laughs) We're a South Florida's NPR affiliate, baby. Yeah, they love you in Fort Lauderdale, too. Um, (laughs) Yeah, we did a Fort Lauderdale guide over the last year. I've been slow. You know, Miami's always going to be our priority, but I've been slowly branching out into Broward to, to write some guides there. You know, in Broward and Fort Lauderdale, there are a lot of classic spots I love. I love La Spada's. If you like a nice, big, meaty Italian sub, La Spada's is where you need to go. Yes, they kill it. So every time. Um, the Greek Islands was like a classic Fort Lauderdale spot that somehow I missed growing up, and I only recently visited it when I was researching our Fort Lauderdale guide. It's fun. It's delicious. A lot of like big family-style Greek recipes and just like shockingly good food. And then I also got to shout out the Catherine, former Miami chef, uh, Timon Ballou, who had a restaurant called Ballou in downtown that was amazing and unfortunately was cut short by the pandemic. But he sort of started over again with a restaurant in Fort Lauderdale called The Catherine. And I think it's one of the more interesting places to eat in Fort Lauderdale if you're looking for kind of like a more creative, trendy dinner. I'm happy to hear you say that because I thought the restaurant that Timon Ballou did uh, was almost like a demo tape, right? Like that was his demo tape. It was like there was 20 seats total, maybe four or five tables tucked mm-hmm. inside this building. And it was a nominee for Best New Restaurant, uh, James Beard uh, yeah. Foundation, I want to say. But but like I said, it was the pandemic and it was like that restaurant didn't seem like it was meant to to last the long haul. But it was like, hey, here's a thing that I can do on my own because he was one of the founding partners, founding chef partners of uh, Sugarcane. Mm-hmm. But he's been trying to do his own thing for a while. And he really said, like, this is me. And I think Catherine is a little bit, uh, maybe a more refined version of that. Yeah, it's it's different. I, I love that restaurant he had in downtown for a while. It breaks my heart every time I think that it's now a random Chinese restaurant that I just walked by yesterday, actually. Um, that's Miami, Mill. That's that's it. I know, constantly changing. But yeah. yeah, the Catherine does feel like a more fleshed out version of that. It's different in a lot of ways, but it's still so, it's very personal. That's what that restaurant was too, and that's what the Catherine is. It's oh. just very close to his heart. It's very much is inspired by his own family. Well, what about places that you're nostalgic about? Are there places that you grew up with that are just like your favorites? I'll, I'll tell you, like one of my most nostalgic places was this place called Asturias. It was a little uh, ostensibly Spanish restaurant, but it was really mostly Cuban in the strip mall next to a Sedanos. And then they renovated the strip mall and they crushed it. And But it'll always live uh, with a special place because it was like when my brother would come visit from California where he lived with his mom, that's where we had a special meal. And it was where we go after church. You know, it was like a spot that we went to and is always kind of special. With What were the places that are special to you growing up? 
you know, the good thing about Fort Lauderdale is it doesn't quite develop at the pace that Miami develops. So a lot of the places I grew up, like a Jack's Hamburgers, just kind of a classic 1950s style hamburger house where you can go get a milkshake after a Little League game or a Little League loss, (laughs) which was the case for me. (laughs) But yeah, so those places are still luckily mostly around in Fort Lauderdale, the ones I grew up with. Miami is a much different story. And even in my brief history living in Miami, which goes back to like 2013-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mourn the places that I've lost since I've since I've moved here. You know, I'm like, one of the people mourning Churchill's. Oh, yeah. Um, a loss of our music venues in particular, like, you know, Grand Central, which is now replaced by the Miami World Center. Los Rosas, which also just recently closed. Right. I, yeah, I find myself more nostalgic for Miami places that close down because they're closing down at such a rapid pace, it seems. Yeah, and you're, uh, and those are all music places. And since you you started in writing about music, I imagine those spots are, are close to your heart. Yeah, I'm forever an advocate of more music venues in Miami. I think it just is what this city needs. There's more spaces where musicians and artists and creatives can kind of have a platform to workshop their art and get it in front of people. Right. But now they've they forced you to, to into the world of writing about food. And I'm curious, like, what's... What's the best thing you ate this year? Like, what's the maybe not the single dish, but what do you, what place are you happy that exists? Uh, place that that kind of surprised you, or food that surprised you this year? Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, I one place that really surprised me, and also gave me one of the absolute best things I ate this year, is a place called QP Tapas in Carl Gables. Oh, that's newish, right? It's newish, and it's also kind of a throwback to these pandemic pop-ups that we've been talking about mm-hmm. in this conversation. That's in Coral Gables, uh, in a little corner, like it's called like Market or something, yep, on a corner called, across from that uh, across from that uh, Target. I want to say exactly. It's called Market Kitchen, and during the day. It's a casual grab-and-go lunch spot. And then at night, they have, in the past couple of years, gave different chefs residencies in, inside of it to kind of try their own thing. And QP Tapas is only three, four months old, um, but it is so delicious. It's by Josh Elliott, who helped open up uh, Orno, I believeve, mm. over in Carl Gables, too. And That's a Neven Pat- uh, the restaurant owned by Neven Patel, correct. who was a James Beard and... Uh, I think like uh, one of the best chefs by one of the magazines or what have you, Food and Correct. Wine or something. Yeah, yep, yep. And uh, it's Cupy Tapas is just so wonderful. It is a Izakaya Spanish tapas mashup, which okay. sounds chaotic and busy, and I was really skeptical about going in, and it it just blew me away. And they have this one dish specifically that is called an uni risotto, which is exactly what it sounds like. It is Ooh. risotto with uni mixed into it. That sounds amazing. It was. If I had to pick my favorite thing that I ate this year, I think that's it. I think that's number one. It, wow. it, at least my favorite new thing I ate this year. Yeah, I so I really recommend people get over to QP Tapas if you're looking to mix things up, if you're kind of in a restaurant rut or you're bored. Go over there. They'll really knock your socks off. Cool. I remember going on, on the Infatuation website, and I see like these numerical number, these this numerical system by it. What goes into that? I have no idea. Tell me about that. Which is which? Which is fine if it's just like an internal thing. But I'm curious, like, what is? Because I, you know, we have that. We have the ideas of like Michelin stars and stars in general, and and newspapers not giving stars anymore. So I'm just curious about what is important to you as far as for the readers to take away, like as far as something numerical or some something that you can write about the experience that you've had there. It is always my hope that a reader engages with our work and actually reads our reviews from the start to the finish. And a lot of people do. Um, 
But, you know, the reality that we live in and how people digest media is a lot of people skim and a lot of people will just scroll through. And the numerical ratings are closely tied to the reviews themselves. You know, we give them the same way New York Times used to give stars and Mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. And, you know, they're essentially there to kind of help our readers make decisions about what restaurant they should pick from our various coverage. They are, you know, there is not a precise science to them. I can tell you my team and I, we have long, long, long conversations, you know, debating if it should be 0.2 decimal points up or 0.2 decimal (laughs) points below. Because they're like 8.8 or 8.7, that Uh kind of thing. And and so, you know, it's not something we just throw together with a gut instinct. A lot of thought goes into them. And at the end of the day, it was something I think our readers really wanted back because they did leave briefly during the pandemic. and, And I think, you know, I think they just helped the user experience of our website a lot. There's a little push-pull in that. I remember uh, Pete Wells said something like um, have, writing, you know, 1,500 words about a place and then having people scroll down to look at the star rating is kind of like an actor being upstaged by a dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, as writers, we're constantly upstaged by every thing. I mean, writing, <laughs> it seems like all new media these days is sort of working, finding some way to work around actually reading stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's why I left writing. Now I'm on radio because this is just, I mean, this is easier, right? Yeah, like. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to actually use your fingers, just your mouth. Yeah, no, it's, you know, it's an, it's an unfortunate reality of the situation. But, you know, that being said, I we work really hard on actually writing our website. And I think it shows. And I think I have worked in a lot of different jobs and writing about a lot of different beats. I have never received the kind of feedback, the kind of reader feedback I do uh, from people at reading the Infatuation Miami, so it's it's not for nothing our our writing and our work. People are paying attention. Well, I think I've heard that more and more about people who who talk and write about food in the sense that it's a way that connects the community that feels much more organic than than a lot of things from politics, which and, and religion, everything else that can be very divisive. But food is not necessarily inclusive because you know people have tastes and people are are fear, fearful of trying something new. But that taking that leap uh, feels like something more accessible. It's a it's a it's a uh, a stream that's easier to forward, it's easier to cross, right? Yeah, everyone has an opinion about food. Everyone eats. Yeah, I was taken aback when I started this job because I was used to writing online, well, very used to it at that point. But I was not prepared for the level of (laughs) intense discourse that goes into writing about restaurants you know the opinions that people have the opinions that they have about your opinions it is such it's fun and i love being part of this conversation but people take it very seriously and you know as well they should it's it's a really important thing to so many people well i mean i could talk about this forever uh but fortunately it won't let us be on the air forever um so what are you looking forward to eating next like what's what's the next place the next spot that you're excited about without giving away without having to wear up your your funny you know uh, mustache or, or glasses or hat to your next sure. review you know there's a lot of exciting openings already in the books for next year i gotta say one that i'm a really big fan of and i know you're a sandwich person too i am a diehard sandwich person and there is a restaurant opening in carl gables that has existed in a few forms over the past year in a ghost kitchen and then in a food truck and now they're finally opening up a brick and mortar frankie and wally's Keep your eyes out for them. Their sandwiches look simple, but are truly the greatest sandwich I think I've ever had. And they're opening up a brick and mortar in Carl Gables, hopefully at the beginning of next year. So very pumped about them. Well, you know, when you're talking sandwiches, you're talking uh, you're talking my language, my friend. <laughs> uh, Ryan, 
thank you so much for making time for us. It's been great to talk with you about food, and certainly we're going to have you on at a certain point later next year to see how things have been going. I'll come back anytime, Carlos. Thank you. And that's Sundial for Wednesday, December 28th. Leslie Obaye Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our digital editor is Mateo Sanchez. Katie Munoz is our interim managing editor. Our senior news editor is Jessica Bateman. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundal's engineer. Engineering our board operations today is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Search WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, another end-of-the-year conversation, and this time we're talking books, the books we loved in 2022, and the stories we're looking forward to reading in the coming year. Joining us are two big book, big book nerds, Connie Ogle from the Miami Herald, who reads more than anyone I know, and Mitchell Kaplan of Books and Books. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening. Public Media.